Greetings, Internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be discussing Eli Roth's first ever kids movie, The House with a Clock in Its Walls, Dan Fogelman's return to feature film in Life Itself, Michael Moore's latest documentary, Fahrenheit 11.9, and Sam Levinson's millennial exploitation movie, Assassination Nation. Plus a Netflix and chat about the Walking With series. Uh, Walking With Dinosaurs, Walking With Beasts, Ballad of Big Al, and Walking With Monsters, uh, as made by BBC Earth. So, let's get started. Please teach me, please, please. Okay, have it your way. I can give you the right books, teach you the right spells, but that last 1%, that's up to you. I don't want the creepy little runt. Think I want him? Lucky shot. You've told Lewis everything? Well, not everything. Do you hear the ticking? 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 This house used to be owned by another warlock. He's very wicked. Very powerful. He left a hidden clock in the walls. We don't know what it does except something horrible. gongs last time it was four what happens when it gets down to one nothing good that's for certain we have to destroy the clock so creepy you can't do this alone i can help you you want to see some real magic i'll show you I hate pumpkins. <laughs> Did you see that? I've actually never heard of this book. Apparently, this is a book that surprisingly has a lot to in common with the Harry Potter franchise, as it turns out. Uh, the book is called The House with a Clock in Its Walls, and it was published in the 70s. Uh, I forget which year exactly, but the book is by John Belairs who I'm also not familiar with. And Wikipedia decided not to load there for a second. Uh, but it was it was an early, early on young adult uh, novel. Like, young adult was just starting out as a genre about this time. Uh, what Wikipedia describes as a juvenile mystery fiction. So yeah, it's young, it was written specifically for with young adults in mind. And um, it was actually illustrated uh, by a, a sort of gothic... An artist who used a lot of Victorian Edwardian settings. Very inspirational for the likes of Tim Burton. Um, Edward Gorey is the artist. Uh, and yeah, he, uh, he his style is definitely it's, it, inspirational for the likes, for people like, um, uh, <laughs> I'm forgetting his name already. Um, yeah, Tim Burton, um, Mark Romanek did, did, did use his style for a Nine Inch Nails video. Um, Jim Henson Company wanted to produce a, a feature film uh, based on one of uh, one of uh, Edward Gorey's books, The Doubtful Guest, that he illustrated. Um, PBS, the opening titles for the PBS series Mystery take take inspiration from his uh, style. So if you've seen if you so if you've seen the sort of goth, that gothic figure. The, that got sort of thin, sickly, gothic figure that takes a lot of um, 
uh, stylistic inspiration from Victorian and Edwardian England. That would be brought to you by Edward Gore. He was kind of the uh, impetus for all of that in goth subculture. And then John Belair's was a writer who's best known for the fantasy novel The Face and the Frost. And then he wrote Gothic Mysteries. Uh, St. Fidget and other parodies sounds like a great collect. Sounds like a great thing, um, but yeah, apparently um, this was his series, The House with a Clock in Its Walls, uh, which was was part of a series. Did become adapted uh, for um, television as and it was featured in a, like a Vincent Pro- like the, the story itself was condensed into one one segment of like a Vincent Price movie. I forget which one. Um, ah, what is the, I forget what, what the show, what the thing was called, uh, but, uh, Double Toasted brought it up, but yeah, he, he was main, he's sort of unknown for the most part. Um, I don't, I, I mean, at least I, he never stood out, maybe more readers of like fantasy and young adult fiction would recognize him, but, um, yeah, I haven't heard of him, but I, his writing sounds like sounds like it's right up my alley. Um, suffice to say that it did take almost fifty years, uh, twenty five years at, uh, on the dot to make this book into a feature length film, and it was brought to us, like I said, by gore hound <laughs> uh, horror director Eli Roth. The same year his death, his mediocre Death Wish remake got released to theaters, he made. And actually pretty good um, kids movie. And this was also produced in part by Steven Spielberg uh, through his Amblin Entertainment uh, studio. Amblin uh, and um, Eric Kripke, uh, who you may recognize uh, as a creator of Supernatural and Revolution and uh, Timeless. He is a co-producer on this. So you got the creator of Supernatural... And the director of Hostel, bringing to life a 70s, um, sorry, that was my iPad talking about a Facebook Messenger, but bringing to, bringing to life a 70s young adult goth mystery. And sadly, it takes more inspiration from Harry Potter than it does, say, an Edward Scissorhands. I think ideally you would have gone for more of an Edward, like more of a Tim Burton vibe. I'm surprised Tim Burton wasn't contacted for this. Did they, uh, did they try to get Tim Burton to do it? <laughs> because I would, I would assume that that's how, that's that's exactly you would get to direct that movie. But um, yeah, th- here we got um, relative newcomer Owen Vaccaro. I didn't recognize him at all. Uh, apparently, he's one of the kid. He's he's one of the sons in Daddy's Home. He was also featured in Mother's Day. But here he actually gets a chance to stand out and be in something relatively good. Um, oh, by the way, uh, I forgot to mention, Eric Kripke, the creator of Supernatural, wrote the script for this. So, yeah, this is a solid pedigree. Um, so, yeah, uh, Spielberg's name is not directly on the on the producer list, but his studio is the main producer. Like, I saw Amblin uh, alongside the Universal, right after the Universal logo. Uh, I think they actually used the old, old school, like, 70s, 80s logos for these. And I'm like, okay, that's a nice throwback. That's a really sweet throwback that they did there. Um, so you've got uh, Owen Vaccaro as the main character, Louis Barnevelt. Uh, but then you've also got, but your main stars of this movie are Jack Black, uh, who this, within the same week of this movie's release got his star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. 
So good for him. He's coming up. He, yo, he's getting his due. Um, and also Kate Blanchett. Uh, Jack, uh, Jack Black plays Jonathan Barnevelt, t- uh, Lewis's uncle, who is his estranged, uh, his mother's estranged brother. And you begin to realize that that's because uh, Jonathan Barnevelt took up witchcraft. He became a warlock. And he befriended Florence Zinnerman, played by Kate Blanchett, who is played, supposed to be much older, but they just put a gray wig on Kate Blanchett. She still looks amazing. If she's supposed to be like 70s, 80s, like aging, like crone, they should have gotten someone more like a Helen Mirren or somebody much older than Kate Blanchett. But I'm willing to f- overlook that because Kate Blanchett and Jack Black have like dynamite chemistry. They are the reason to see this movie. Um, yeah, Kate Blanchett plays, um, well, I think they're hinting that she is, um, like, this takes place in the 50s. This is right after World War II. Uh, the villain of the piece is actually very, very understandable in his, um, in his motives. He has, he has defined motivations for his actions, and it's played by Twin Peaks' own, and, and, um, uh, what's his name? I've already forgotten the guy's name, director of Dune, um. Um, um, why can't I remember the director's name? Damn it. Uh, David Lynch. Uh, he is Dave, the David Lynch's golden boy. Kyle MacLachlan is the villain in this movie. And he does a solid job as a villain, whether, de- depending on whether he's got, like, makeup on or if he's, uh, played to make, made look much younger. He's, uh, he plays it very well. Um, you might also recognize, uh, Sonny Suljic. He is a young actor, who play? Who is about to be in um, Jonah Hill's directorial debut, mid '90s, and he was also uh, the kid in Killing of the Sacred Killing of a Sacred Deer. So he's also a young up and comer, and he was also the voice of Atreus in the God of War video game that just came out this year. So this kid is is also seeing his rise up. Uh, oh, they he, apparently the IMAX version of this movie was released with Michael Jackson's Thriller in some countries. Uh, uh, specifically the United States. Um, so yeah, uh, it, the house with the clock in its walls, the move, I don't know if the book suffers from this, but the movie, I think coming out after Harry Potter feels like one of those Harry Potter knockoffs that they tried to do. Aragon, the Golden Compass, the Spiderwick Chronicles. There were a lot of young adult adaptations. The, uh, the, the 2004 series of unfortunate events movie, a lot of stuff, post-Harry Potter success came out and really tried to crib that style. And this one feels like it was a, a 10 years too late for trying to jump on that trend a bit. And it stinks because it, it shouldn't be that way. It should be, it should be more of its own style. And thankfully, it does have a lot of good going for it. The chemistry, like I said, the chemistry between Jack Black and Kate Blanchett is wh- why you see this movie. But even the kids in this movie are pretty darn good when they're given good material. And then... They have a really interesting way of tackling magic, where, like, Jack Black has to play a saxophone, and um, Lewis, Lewis, the main character, uses a magic eight ball that was gifted to him from his parents. And it's really, it was a really interesting climax. And they do have some solid special effects, although the special effects get noticeably cheaper looking as the movie goes on. It's almost like they started the climactic uh, CGI last instead of starting it first 
I don't know. It feels weirdly cheaper as the movie goes on. I don't know how that happened. But at the same time, I'm not going to say you shouldn't see this movie. I wish it was better, but it managed to stave off pure, pure mediocrity with its cast and with some of the writing. And I think the writing helped because we've got a, the writer of, the, of Supernatural, the creator of Supernatural, doing the writing of this movie. And I think some of his style and flair has made its way into the into the into this movie and I think it helped a lot and it proved that Eli Roth can do can do kids movies. Eli Roth can hold back on the gore and the viscera and the horror and do gothic kids movies. Not not true gothic. This isn't Tim Burton like mid early 90s Tim Burton gothic. But he can do kids' movies. He's capable of doing more than just splatter gore horror movies. Which makes me wonder, what other movies could we get from, from Eli Roth? How, what other genres is he capable of doing well? And will he continue to experiment? Um, I'm not sure what he's got slated next. Uh, looking at his... Looking at... Um, is seeing. I'm trying to see if they've got any upcoming products. Uh, <laughs> uh, shot for shot remake of my kids of Raiders of the Lost Ark to the attention of Harry Nelson. Oh, he brought it. I thought he bought it. But uh, no, that's cute. That's cute. He uh, shared um, a, a shot for shot remake for Ra- of Raiders of the Lost Ark with Harry Knowles and Steven Spielberg, and they showed it at Buttonamathon, which was cu- which was neat. Um, He's a, you know, he's a producer, produced Man with the Iron Fist with the RZA and The Last Exorcism. Uh, I'm not sure if he did the second movie, but um, he was originally supposed to direct The Meg, which makes me wonder how he would have handled that movie and if it would have been any better. I didn't like it, but you know what? Hey, it worked. For, it worked. It, it's successful, so that's all the studio cares about. Um, let me take a look at his IMDb. Maybe that has a be- maybe that lists some of his upcoming product projects. Uh, announced producer apparently is a co-producer on Baywatch as well, which is kind of weird. But hey, you know, get your hand to as many pies as you can. Um, he's he's writing something called Lake Mead. Uh, journalism student Lily disappears while making a documentary about the water levels of Lake Mead. Okay, so they seem to be going for like a a very Blair Witch Styles premise. I'm not sure if they're planning to do it as a uh, faux documentary like Blair Witch, a mockument, you know, a sort of found footage movie, or if they're going to go for a standard narrative st- structure for it. But um, Jessica Chandler is the director for that, and what is she known for? Miscellaneous Crew on Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Taxicab Confessions. And then this is going to be her first feature-length film. So that'll be interesting. But apparently he's not... There aren't any announced uh, projects as a director. He seems to be focusing a lot on uh, producing right now. Like he's got a history of horror documentary series that he's producing for AMC, which sounds cool. And he's producing something called Haunt as well. Uh, which is a Halloween group of friends in an extreme haunted house that promises to feed their darkest fears. Uh, directed by Scott Beck and Brian Woods, who are also the writers. Oh, he's producing The Quiet Places guys next movie. Awesome. Nice. I'm down for that. So yeah, he's he's hitching his wagon to some good folks. Uh, yeah, I, I've 
I never liked his earlier stuff, Eli Roth, but I never got the feeling that he was a bad person. I think he was just like a little kid who got super hyped to do all do some do certain things with film. Um, like imagine the kid from Super Eight that as as sort of like a, a sort of like an Eli Roth if he was more or if he was had, if he had like the personality of um, oh who's that one kid from Stand by Me the kid with the glasses. Uh, uh, Corey Feldman's character, um, Teddy Duchamp. Um, I, I picture like the kid from Super Eight was Teddy Duchamp. That would be kind of Eli Roth, and yeah, he's he, he's he's. He, I think I would get along with him a lot, although I don't love a lot of his work. I think this is my favorite of his because I never got into Cabin Fever or or the Hostel movies, or um, I didn't see his. Uh, Green Inferno, the last one he did before uh, Death Wish came out. And I didn't see Hemlock Grove either, although I heard a lot of bad things about it. So, I don't know. I think I think he's capable of good stuff. He just, he, he just kind of, he, he's just like a little kid. I'm like, I want to, you know, he wants blood splattered everywhere. Like it's finger paint, like he's finger painting with it. And... And, I, and he, but he's definitely got a passion for film and I, and I love that about him. So... Yeah, um, the house with the clock in its walls. It's it's definitely it feels kind of derivative, and I think that's because Harry Potter kind of sucked the wind out of this kind of story. At the same time, there's enough going on here that I think people will differentiate it. I don't think it's going to be too successful. I think people are kind of uh, tired of of these kinds of stories unless you can bring something else to it. Which I thought if they went more gothic, maybe filmed it in black and white, it could have brought brought more to it. But yeah, what are you going to do? Uh, hey, uh, hey! It's I, I personally my favorite Eli Roth film. So there you go, uh, and I I really hope he expands his his filmography. He expands with what he is willing to direct and write. I think he can if he expanded his he expanded outside of his wheelhouse and experimented with all kinds of stuff. We would be see some interesting stuff from him. Maybe he's better as a comedy director, for instance. We'll we'd have to wait and see, but. Uh, I'm interested now. I'm definitely interested to see what the next Eli Roth project is going to be, and it seems like he's going to focus on producing a lot of stuff. So we'll see next time he gets behind the chair. Don't take this the wrong way. All I ever wanted was for Will to marry a woman with dead parents, so I wouldn't have to share the grandchildren. And Boom. It's okay. She knows what I'm Strange, how a completely random moment that happened way before I was born which shaped my entire life. Are you glad it happened? Star small, grow tall. Hey, are you pregnant? <laughs> Surprise! Star small, grow tall. While Eli Roth is seeing some more success, uh, at least uh, in his in his own way, with. Uh, the house one with clock on its walls and trying to do a kids movie. Dan Fogelman's seems to be better suited for television. Um, Dan Fogelman, for those who may not know his name, is the creator of the critically acclaimed "This Is Us" for I think ABC or something. Whoever, whoever airs that, but he, that's what he's best known for. I mentioned in the opening that he is returning to film because he actually did direct a movie before. He wrote and directed. The uh, 2015 
schlock movie, Danny Collins. That's for those who don't know, Danny Collins is is your mom is probably your mom's favorite movie, and it's about Al Pacino playing an aging rock star trying to reconnect with his family. Uh, it, and it's got Al Pacino, Annette Bening, I think is his estranged wife, Jennifer Garner, and Bonnie Bobby Cannavale are his are his kids, and then or maybe like his son and his daughter in law, uh, Christopher Plummer's in it. Josh Peck is apparently in it. Uh, I just remember it being touted as boring as all hell. You know, for apparently being biographical in nature. Uh, as as a rock star, he after a rock star rock star discovers a forty year old letter written to him by John Lennon. So I guess maybe this was based on an actual uh, singer, but I remember. Uh, inspired, inspired by a true story. There you go. Uh, yeah, he. It, it. I remember it being considered wildly mediocre by by audiences, and I remember I think uh, double toast to cover because this would have been um, after Spill had died. But I think in the early days of double toast, and not them. I think maybe one of us .net, one of the ex Spill guys covered it, and it was. Yeah, it was not received very well by them. It was, Jeff, it was definitely one of those boring mom or grandma movies. And so Dan Fogelman uh, took to television with, and, and saw great success with This Is Us. And, and so he decided uh, to... And he also, you know, he also had the critically acclaimed, though short-lived, Gallivant series, uh, the, the show Pitch... He had he had short he was he helped he helped with and even though it was short lived, uh, pitch being the Fox series about the first female pitcher in MLB in the MLB, uh, and then yeah this but this is us is what he's best known for now, and and yet he managed apparently Amazon worked with him to get a movie out, and that movie is some. Cloud Atlas style multi generational story called Life Itself, which shares its name with the documentary about Roger Ebert. Sadly enough, uh, so it's not even the best. So it can't, not only is it a bad film, it shares its name with a much better film. <laughs> oh, fun! But um, yeah, the, the story features centers on. I, I don't. I, you know what? Um, we're gonna put this right here because I honestly don't care if I spoil it or not. So, if those are, if there's anybody who's actually interested in the movie, here's your warning. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! I haven't done one of those in a while, but honestly, I I can't talk about this movie and my myriad of problems with it without going into spoilers. So, yeah, suffice to say that you can skip ahead now to the next review if if you if you if you care if you care about seeing the movie yourself. Just know that it's not very good. It's definitely not good. It's it, Dan Fogelman is not good in this movie. You know, with his with the way he do, makes this movie is not good. That's all you need to know. But for those who don't care about spoilers, here you go. This movie, uh, at, at the very end, is revealed to be the backstory of a fictional woman's grandparents and parents. How how her grandparents and how her grandparents met and gave birth to their 
to her parents and then her how her parents met. Unfortunately, while that's an interesting idea for a movie and brings up some interesting philosophical ideas about narrator and uh, you know who the heroes and villains are, this movie stinks. This movie opens with a it, it makes it feel it feels like it's trying to be like a meta movie uh, where, where um, Oscar Isaac is writing a screenplay, only that's revealed to be nonsense. And then we've got another outside narrator who starts narrating the rest of the movie. And then Oscar Isaac is just, you know, taken out of the movie by the end of the first quote unquote chapter. And <laughs> it's revealed that he, he, he became like estranged from his wife who, uh, it, Although estranged is a lie because she died and he went and he had a mental breakdown. His wife played by Olivia Wilde. And so it's revealed, they've revealed it. Well, we'll, you know, they, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff with unreliable narrators and they recreate things that aren't in it, that are, that are fictional and, and have like the narrators of the, of what, of the fictional fictional, fictional recreations be within the scenes themselves. It's interesting concept, but what it is basically is your stoner friend sitting around writing a movie. You know, what if like we were recreating something and reliving a memory, but we were there too. Like it's the holodeck, man. Nah, man. Like what if we were, we started the movie like we were writing the movie and we got to see the movie that we were writing like it was in our heads, man. Um, Nah, man, nah, man, you know what we should do? We should, like, cut between po characters' points of view and then reveal, like, that it was all leading up to the birth of a single person that we never get introduced to or know anything about, man. Yeah, that's this movie. This movie leads to a person we were never introduced to and get no, no backstory on who's narrating how her parents and grandparents her parents and grandparents more interesting lives apparently um yeah what you need all you need to know is that the best part of this movie is the part that takes place in spain that features antonio banderas and even that is not very good it's like a very weak sort of telenovela style style drama but at least it's trying to tell an interesting story somewhat at least it's trying to at least it has somewhat of a point to it, and it has some drama and pathos in it. Meanwhile, the stuff with Oscar Isaac and Olivia Wilde feels like a bunch of hipsters, you know, geeking out over Tarantino movies and Bob Dylan music. It, it It's nothing. It, it, it Like, they try to have, make it have drama and weight and stakes, but it's got nothing. It has nothing. Like, it's played almost for laughs. It's so bad. And then... The introduction to the mom character, who was played by Olivia Cook, not Olivia Cook. Um, that's somebody else. I think she's in uh, Assassination Nation. Who's the girl in Life Itself? What's her name? Uh, uh, Benning plays the therapist, who's only in one one. You know, who's only in one part of the movie. Um, no, it is Olivia Cook. Okay, I was right. Olivia Cook plays uh, Oscar Isaac and Olivia Wilde's daughter, who's only there for like. Ten minutes before they move on and spend most of the movie in Spain dealing with 
who, who what is essentially a an extra in the shot where uh, Olivia Wilde dies. The extra, uh, th- this extra shot of a kid on a bus eventually becomes the father character uh, and gets into a relationship with Olivia Cook somehow through through fate apparently how weird would that be hey i hey how you feeling oh by the way i was a kid on the back in the background uh, i was an extra on the scene where your mom died isn't that weird isn't that crazy isn't that so weird it's like fate brought us together through your mom dying in fact arguably i killed your mom let's have a baby god this movie is so stupid um, meanwhile, Mandy Patinkin plays Oscar Isaac's dad, and he is so wasted in this movie. Him and Antonio Banderas are giving excellent performances, and they're given crap to work with. I have no idea if This Is Us is any good or if it's melodramatic schlock like in this movie, but this movie, it has interesting ideas. It wants to go for something. It tries to get philosophical, but what it is is essentially a five-episode miniseries edited into a two-hour movie, and it feels like some stuff is rushed, but then the whole episode that dealt with um, Spain and the parents of the father character, uh, it feels like that part went all the way through. It's just everything else that's just rushed right on. Like, there's this whole bit, the whole chapter with Olivia Cook is like the shortest bit, and we know nothing about her! And then we learn way more about about the guy who becomes her husband and the father of her child than we do about her. Like, what the hell, movie? What are you? What is your point? What are you trying to say? And this movie is like trying to be pseudo deep and philosophical. Like, this is about life itself. This is about all the weird synchronicity of the universe and how things are meant to happen, I guess. How narrators are unreliable. And like I said, it feels like a bunch of stoners sat around and talked philosophy and then geeked out about Tarantino and Bob Dylan. And then one of them started, one of them talked about his, his childhood in Spain. And then that became the movie. Your stoner friends talking about nothing is the is this movie i don't know what what the hell happened i don't i still i've never seen this is us so i can't even say if dan fogelman is any good but i but i heard bad things about danny collins i've heard good things about this is us i heard great things about gallivant and then this sucked so my best guess is dan fogelman's best fit for tv stick to tv man you know, there's you know. Whereas I'm, I'm cool with Eli Roth expanding his horizons. Unless Dan Fogelman could do better, this is not. This was then he maybe should just stick to TV. How the f- did this happen? The American dream is dead. Stop resisting. The president's powers here are beyond question. Ladies and gentlemen, the last president of the United States. Coming to an American city near you. I owe Michael Moore an apology. As much as people compare Dinesh D'Souza as the right 
uh, Michael Moore. That comparison is very superficial, and I, in fact, made that comparison in the last episode during the trailer talk segment for this movie. And having seen it, the differences are staggering. The only comparison is that Moore and D'Souza use that sort of director as the as the as the centerpiece of the documentary. That's the only comparison they have. And while Michael Moore is definitely can be sensational, for the most part, he doesn't twist the facts. He presents them as they are. Whereas D'Souza will falsify and twist the actual facts and history of something in order to present a more, you know, a, a narrative to essentially become propaganda. This is not propaganda. This is actual filmmaking. This is presenting a narrative film as part of, as as you know as, as presenting the life through a through the narrative of of a documentary film. You know, it presents it presents things with ebbs and flows and chapters in it and it it's a genuinely well-made film. Dinesh D'Souza cannot make good movies. At least Michael Moore is 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 a competent filmmaker. More than competent, he's a he's a phenomenal documentarian. Uh, you know, depending on what you qualify as documentary, because I think that's his biggest thing for me, and why I'm, I, I never get into the guy as much is that he's the centerpiece of the documentary, and I feel like I'm more of a Ken Burns guy. The fact that he doesn't he he never becomes the centerpiece for the for for the subject. He become he is the outsider. He's the professor presenting it like it's a lecture. Whereas Michael Moore is more of a TV presenter. He is the host of the documentary, so to speak. And that's that's my ma- biggest gripe with the movie is that I am not a fan of the hosts. I I will say this: he definitely holds back on that mostly. He becomes more of the narrator of the of the documentary, although he does host the interviews and he does do a good job with uh, with those interviews. And he, you can definitely – there are some bits and pieces where you can kind of see him goading certain answers out of people. But at the same time, like, the people – you know, for the most part, he's present he's, – it's not like he's, you know, twisting anything. He is presenting the facts as they occurred and just commenting on how that fits into the, you know, his, the worldview he's trying to present. You know, the whole idea of that money is the problem. Not speci- you know, and especially how money has twisted people, and and how people are people with money are twisting are twisting the facts and mis- and misrepresenting things in order to control people. And as much as the advertising and the marketing focuses on Trump, this is not a movie about Trump specifically. This is this Michael Moore is not so not so t- you know ha- ha- doesn't. You know, doesn't have the tunnel vision to solely focus on Trump because that would make for a boring movie. He covers the gamut of 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 the of subjects leading, like specifically leading into the 2016 election and what has been going on since then. Uh, this movie covers things ranging from the Flint. Specifically, this movie is more about the Flint water crisis than it is about Trump and being from Flint. You know, this is a very important subject to Michael Moore, and he wants to. He he has basically shown us what what caused the Flint water crisis and why it hasn't gotten better. And he opened. You know, he not only had, he. And that's the great thing is that it's not even him confronting. Um, uh, he's not even him just confronting like. Uh, 
what's his name? I've already forgotten his name. Uh, Rick Snyder. Rick Snyder. I was thinking Rick Scott, but I think he's the governor of Florida. But he, who does show up uh, as part of the Stoneman Douglas kids that he does talk to. But Rick Snyder, it's not just him confronting Rick Snyder and his and his cronies. It's it, he's he's showing footage of all the people of Flint and Michigan uh, citizens confronting him over the, all of this and how they have no words. They they have no words. They only have BS. And it even goes so. And, but and that's the thing, though. He's it's never just oh the Democrats are the answer. Clearly the Demo- just vote Democrat. No, he challenges the establishment. He go he even goes back all the way to 1992 and criticizes Bill Clinton's actions in office and how they partially led to this. The fact of the matter is Bill Clinton even used the slogan make America great again. Reagan is best known for it before Trump, but Clinton himself co-opted a phrase used by Ronald Reagan. It was em- emphasizing the fact that Clinton and sort of neoliberals, neoliberalism, co-opted the Democratic Party to make them more in line with Republicans in the guise of, you know, catering to the center or something like, or something, some BS like that, when mainly it was to profiteer from the same people as the Republicans were profit, profiting from. And that's how it is now. That's why you hear, that, you know, he even comments on the fact that both Obama and Hillary Clinton profited from people like, from companies like Goldman Sachs. And... When when challenge you know when Obama came to, there's a heartbreaking you know segment where Obama comes to Flint and you get to and you get to see the citizens of Flint's hearts break as their president the president they elected the ones who they thought would fight for them toe to the line it's a heartbreaking piece one of the one of the highlights of the movie and I think the best part ultimately is. That Michael Moore is not just doom and gloom. It's not fully doom and gloom because he highlights all of the people doing good. Specifically, four candidates that I did tweet out. Um, uh, let me pull up my tweet because I don't remember them off the top of my head. But basically, he pulled up. Uh, you know, he he inter- he mainly interviewed one. Uh, One uh, candidate, uh, the um, the uh, rep- the one who he's running for, I believe, representative in uh, for West Virginia. But um, you know, he sh- I don't think he got to interview her, but he uh, talked about um, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez uh, from the Bronx. He interviewed Richard Oye- Ojeda, I believe Ojeda, uh, uh, Ojeda. I don't know how you pronounce his name. I don't know how you pronounce your name, sir, but I wish you the very best. But yeah, he's running for House of Representatives in West Virginia. And Richard is my hero. He's the one I thought was like a skinhead that Michael Moore was interviewing. But no, Ojeda is like, damn it. I'm going to have to look this up. I don't know how to pronounce this this man's name. Uh, Let me, here, let me pull it. Okay, sorry, I'm listening to uh, one of his campaign ads. Ojeda, okay. I want to get your name right, sir, because not only are you amazing, but I know you could kick my ass. In fact, he talks about it in the movie. He could, you know, how he could kick somebody's ass. And he, and his campaign manager is a trucker who's 
content currently truck you know trucking and hauling hauling cargo across the country and running this man's campaign. I love this. I absolutely love this. It is grassroots to a T. And uh, Richard Ojeda is um, his. In the trailer, I confused him for like a a skinhead or like a you know somebody somebody on the far right that Michael Moore was interviewing because that's how it that's how it seemed. But no, Ojeda's like pro union, anti corruption, hard ass like mil- ex military dude is a dude is awesome. Dude is amazing, and I love him, and I want him to win. Uh, they, he also brings up uh, Rashida Tlaib. Uh, I believe that's how you pronounce her name, Tlaib. Uh, she is the nominee for House of Representatives in Michigan. I believe the Detroit area. Uh, she's a she's a Detroit native, and uh, he got to interview her uh, for some for a bit. And he also showcased Lissa Lissa Wile. Uh, Wile, yeah, I believe Wile. Um, who, who you may know as the as I believe the teacher teacher or maybe the mom whoever uh, however you um you forget I believe she was a teacher uh, who also got who also um fo- who also is is uh, running for the House of Representatives uh, U.S. House of Representatives in um in West Virginia I believe pretty sure. Uh, West Virginia House Chamber talking about how out-of-state corporate interests. Yeah, so I believe she is also running for um, running running for office as well. If not her, if not running, then uh, then I believe. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure she's running. Yeah, uh, so I think she's running for the district that Huntington is. You know, the that contains Huntington, West Virginia, because I think she's a Huntington native and. If that's the case, I know who. Uh, I know. I hope. I hope I know who the McElroys and the Smurls are voting for, because <laughs> she seems like a. She's she's another one of those badasses who's like who. She was the one who was dragged out of the House chambers because for uh, for talking about campaign donors in, in the in the West Virginia House of House of, you know, um, House of Representatives. This this girl is. These this girl, everybody here, they're my heroes. They're amazing. They want me to get involved and become a candidate myself, seeing how passionate they are for running real, actual change. And I'm, I am, I am psyched that Michael Moore, you know, ensured that you know, made sure to showcase the four of them to be like, hey, look, there is hope. We, you know, there are people. Fighting back, they are pushing pushing back against this seeming rising tide of hate and corruption and status qu- and the and this horrible status quo we're, we're feeling, and we've been feeling for so long. And these are people who want actual change to happen, and I'm glad that it wasn't doom and gloom. I'm glad it wasn't just yo know, here's how everything's messed up and there's nothing we can do about it. No, he's. He's showcased the Stoneman Douglas kids, how they actually managed to get a Republican candidate for upper re-election to step down and be unopposed by a Democratic candidate. Um, that how they've continually, uh, fought, you know, pushed back against you know, p- you know, people who are who are who are supported by the gun lobby and the NRA, and how they're just they're just people being inspired to take part. And the fact of the matter is that. The, that even though three million people decided for Hillary, a hundred million people chose not to vote in the election. 
They opted out of voting, and that's why where we are at. And of course, you know the electoral college. He brought up the fact that the people we that the, the the electoral college is a relic that is that is made to be, made for the benefit of slaveholding states. Um, well, slave well well everyone was a slave owner back then, but for the benefit of majority slave owner states, you know the ones that profit the most from slavery, the you know the the South Virginia, the the you know the, the southernmost colonies, and. That we don't need it anymore. That we that we never really needed it, and that it's only only proven to be a bur- you know to be a burden on the system, and to only benefit those those with you know it's a minority of people, like less than a percentage of people, picking who the winner is, not even being beholden to the results, just basically. Whoever they, you know, whoever, you know, it, 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 te- they try to focus on the results, but it never really benefits anybody. And as much as you could say, oh, the popular votes only means that only big cities get to choose the, choose the president. Not necessarily, and that's not even necessary. Because I mean, once again, if if enough, there are three, there are, there are at least a hundred fifty million, if not two hundred million, voting age people in this country. That could go for anybody. That means there are, there's actually a larger percentage of people outside major metro, major metropolitan areas like New York, LA, Chicago, Chicago, Houston, etc. The majority of people do not live in cities. And their votes ultimately sway who gets to be in office. And so Oh, you know, the popular vote doesn't just cater to the big cities. It is the majority of people don't live in the big cities. They live in the rest of the country. They are the deciding ma- votes. So why are we still relying on the electoral college when we should be focusing on allowing for every single two hundred, every single of those two hundred million voters to have access to voting? And why are we denying people access to the vote? Based on, you know, like if criminals continue to be in the criminal, you know, embroiled within the criminal justice system and they showcase that they, that they're dangerous, then okay, I guess. But the idea that you are taking away somebody's right to vote as a citizen, be it, be be it whatever you've done, that does feel, that feels like a cheat, and, it, and especially since it's being used on a syst- with a system that predominantly targets minorities. Yeah, that definitely feels like it's a problem. Uh, and, and it, feels like it's, it feels like something inherent within the system that should be changed as well. You know, hell, why not let prisoners vote from their cell? They can pick, they, you know, inform them of who's running, let them decide. If they are a citizen of the United States, why should they not, why should they, they be denied the right to vote? I mean, there are arguments to be made for that. That's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a whole other discussion for a whole different style podcast. But suffice to say that the system needs to be changed. The only ones who can change it are us. We outnumber the money. We we can we can as as long as we have the as long as we ch- choose to stand up to those in power and fight against and fight against those who are, those who would exploit us, they can't do anything about it. And, they, and that is exemplified with the West Virginia teacher strike that he also covers. He showcased how every single West Virginia teacher 
fought back against their union who was willing to compromise and leave out other other members of the uh, educational system and they just, and the teachers decided well yeah we got what we got partially we partially got what we wanted but no we're not going to let the we're going to we're not going to let our fellow school staff be suffer while we get the we reap partials you know only partial benefit we're still fighting back we're not giving up until we get exactly what we want and they did as long as you stand together and stand there you know once again it's the whole argument that a bundle of sticks you know a single stick can break a bundle of sticks takes more pressure to break and it's a lot harder to break and that's why it's somewhat very important that we all take part in the process. No matter how disenfranchised we feel, no matter how much we think the system is against us, the only way to stand up to it is to take part in it. And once we're a part of it, we can try to dismantle it and fix it and do something better with it. And I think that's the nice thing about this documentary is the big thing, to t- the big takeaway is your vote matters. Don't neglect your vote. Not just in the big elections. Look to your, and start, you know, at like, every, you know, think globally, act locally. Think of who your representatives are. Think of how you can change who your representatives are. Become involved in the system. Become involved and try and do and for and stand up to the, the inherent injustices within the system and fight back. And I, and that's why I think this is probably Michael Moore's best documentary. Um, I'd have to revisit his entire filmography to be sure, but it's definitely the most prescient one at the time. So yeah, it's if you I I apologize, Michael Moore. The Dinesh D'Souza comparisons are so superficial; they're they're that that they're ludicrous. The, be, the there is no real comparison because Dinesh D'Souza makes garbage and is a liar and is a and is a and is a hack, whereas you, while you're eccentric, and you become and you are the centerpiece of your movies for the most part, at least you know how to make a movie, and at least you're able to present your argument. And damn if I don't agree with you a hundred percent. So I apologize, Michael Moore. You are not the left's Dinesh D'Souza, because I don't know if we have Dinesh D'Souza. And got because God knows we don't need one. Who sees a naked photo of a girl and their first thought is, Yo, I gotta kill this girl. Where do you think you're going, Lily? Way more people than you'd think. your world you built this don't take your hate out on me i just got here you may kill me but she can't kill us all we are almost at the hour mark and i haven't even gotten to the netflix and chat yet so let's make this quick assassination is what I wish The Purge was. This is from Sam Levinson, whose last movie that, I, that I'm that i familiar with was the HBO um, 
movie about, I believe, Bernie Madoff. Uh, let me pull up. Uh, it uh, was it Bernie Madoff. It's The Wizard of Lies, and it was an HBO movie uh, about, but yeah, Bernie Madoff and his Ponzi scheme. He uh, he wrote it uh, for, I believe, his father, Barry Levinson. Wait a second. Are they father and son? Let me check the bio. About uh, spouses, da, 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 tri, da, 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 trivia. Stepfather of Michelle Levinson and Patrick Levinson. Father of writer director, writer directors uh, Sam and Jack Levinson. So yeah, this is Barry Levinson's son. Actually, Barry Levinson, best known for uh, directing Rain Man. Producing toys and wag the dog, riding on diner, um, still kicking. So good for him. Uh, he directed and produced Wizard of Lies, and uh, he's also direct. He also directed that paternal movie for HBO as well. Uh, Rock the Casbah, The Humbling, The Bay. You don't know Jack about Jack uh, Kevorkian. Does a lot of work with uh, HBO. It seems. What just happened? Man of the Year. Envy, Bandits. So Barry Levinson is uh, very prominent. And so Sam Levinson, this is his first kind of... This is his first kind of show on his own. Uh, this is uh, He did write and direct, I believe, Another Happy Day. Uh, which is about... Which is a sort of romantic dramedy, it seems like. Uh, wedding at her parents' Annapolis estate hurls high-strung Lynn into the center of a touchy family dynamic... Starring uh, Ellen Barkin, Ezra Miller, Ellen Bernstein, Demi Moore, Thomas Hayden Church, Kate Bosworth. Great cast. Uh, not very well reviewed, but that was his first film. And then he helped write uh, Wizard of Lies. And then this is his next, his latest movie. And it's really good. Uh, Sam Levinson essentially did a millennial exploitation movie. Tying back into the, like, the likes of Female Scorpion, uh, the Japanese uh, exploitation revenge fantasy genre, uh, uh, series. And the premise here is four girls, um, two white, one black, and one trans. Uh, the trans woman played by a trans actress, Hari Neff. Uh, and then Odessa Young was the actress I was thinking of. And then Suki Waterhouse and newcomer Abra. Uh, they're four friends in high school, just as, um, Things are going all everybody's secrets are getting leaked. First, it starts with the mayor who turns out to be into uh, dressing in lingerie and hiring uh, hiring gay prostitutes while running on a family values sort of uh, campaign and ticket. And so it starts with him getting exposed, and then the teacher is has photos leaked of him of him t- like the and the thing was with with the principal. Uh, not a teacher, the principal of the school. His thing was he had a photo of his baby girl in the bathtub naked. And everyone thought, oh my god, he's a pedophile and a molester. And like, no, people are just... I mean, like, think about it. How many photos of kids... Do parents have of their kids in the bath naked? Like, that's just a thing some parents have. I mean, they don't keep them on their phone necessarily, but it's the 21st century. So... It's not surprising that somebody took, you know, a parent took that photo because, like, oh my god, you might make kid adorable, but it doesn't make, you know, then and that ties into whole, but it all ties into the fact that people want him fired because they think he's a, a molester and a pedophile because he had a picture of his daughter naked in the bathtub, 
And so it's the whole idea of that reactionary culture has become so vi- violent and it demands blood despite the, you know, with, without, uh, without any, any real um, due process. And eventually it leads into a massive leak of information that uh, leads to everybody's information being revealed, all of their secrets laid bare, and it ties into Odessa Young's character uh, having a relationship with her next-door neighbor and the father of a kid she used to babysit, uh, Joel McHale. And... And 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 that and that all you know that lead, and then things take a and then it's um the <laughs> there's a lynch mob that that tortures information out of one of the kids that says that same girl Jessica Young's character is the one that caused the leaks and so the last last act of this movie is straight up exploitation the set the first act is the setup the second act is sort of the pot starting to boil. And then the third act is where everything just just goes balls to the wall. And so you've got, like, it leads, it starts off with the girls watching that female scorpion movie with red leather jackets on. And then the lynch mob coming for them. And eventually them, them starting to turn the tables. And, like, this movie opens with a trigger warning. That it that it talk, says that hey this is going to talk deal with violence, uh, transphobia, homophobia, misogyny, you know attempted rape. Uh, doesn't really go into racism as much, but definitely a, mo- focuses mainly on misogyny. And there is and because one of the they do acknowledge you know they do acknowledge one of the women is trans, uh, played and played by trans actress Hari Neff, who you may recognize from Transparent, and. But but that at the same point that never it never becomes about like the transition. It's it just hey, this trans girl exists in the universe. It, she's just a character in the movie, and she's having fun with her friends until um, until that be, it becomes a point a plot point that one of the football players ha, you know had uh, performed a sexual act with her. And, you know, they got all creeped out, weirded out, like, God, can you believe that? And it becomes really transphobic. And then it's, and then it becomes, you know, very prominent who they're, who they're, um, basing these Lee Lynch mobs on. It becomes very prominent that this is the alt-right and especially Trump supporters, because there's a lot of Trump supporter rhetoric used in this movie without ever bringing up Trump. And it's definitely the alt right's motivations and actions, and it's and it becomes these four high school girls standing up to what is ostensibly the alt right. And I'll I will say this: it's not my I lo- I like it more than the Purge. It's more stylistic. It it it, it centers on the you know has by focusing on this. Uh, on fighting against misogyny, you get to see these women having to deal with it on a daily basis. Like the fact that uh, Odessa Young's character can't draw nudes because it's pornography, even though part of art class is drawing nudes. The female, you know, the, the human form in you know in the nude is a prominent feature. It, God, but that's the whole point: is that this town named you know named Salem and tying into the whole Salem witch trials is. Very prudish and very, very traditionalist. And 
you know, when their secrets are all laid bare, that they're all hypocrites, they lose their damn full minds and they get violent. And it's revealed that a bunch of them are like, you know, they, they, they collect that they collected guns and they were, and they were just, they were, they, they were, they were, they like target Odessa Young's character and try to kill her just because she had sex. She had an affair with a married man. So that's that. Hey, that's basis enough to go after her and try to kill her, kill her and attempt to, you know, attempt to rape, you know, that's, that's obviously the right solution. Ugh. I mean, that's, I mean, they're definitely, but hey, this is all commentary in the fact that there's this reactionary environment that we've created for ourselves in the 21st century where we act on our emotions and don't let due process take its course. And it, it and you've got these people who, when everything beco- when everything's laid bare, they you know they want their they want to make their town great again. You know, I think they even use the line "Make Salem great again." And yeah, it become it becomes a full on lynch mob, and it's the four women eventually having to stand up to this lynch mob. And then, of course, it ties back into the whole fact that the lot a lot of the leaks have to deal with the the deal have come through 4chan, and it's this you know it's also a commentary on the fact that there's a prominent prominent um, mindset on on the internet of doing things just because nihilistic sort of anarchistic ideologies leaking into like, eh, why not? Let's just watch the world burn. You know, some people just want to watch the world burn. And a lot of those people exist on 4chan and they've leaked into YouTube comments and Reddit. And yeah, those people are definitely out there and they have no problem, you know, ex- you know leaking information from people and just causing chaos because they think they're the Joker from The Dark Knight. Uh, this isn't perfect, though. I feel like while it's good that they have a prominent trans character that isn't dealing with the transition, it's all, I feel like she's denied her um, her catharsis, her cathartic moment of uh, getting to fu- getting to really take you know take you know to, to really fight back against her abusers. Whereas the other, you know, the main character got to do that. I feel like that's a shame. At the same time, like, I'm glad they featured her. I just wish they, you know, allowed her to take part in the exploitation. And that's the other thing. This this features a black character and a lot of black and Latino, you know, some, a a good mix. Like, Anika Nani Rose, uh, it plays the black daughter, black teenager's mom. And she gets a cool sequence halfway through the movie, but at the same time, like this never deals with race at any point, which I feel like you'd almost want to tackle. But it almost, but I guess he didn't want to go too much into race, considering that there are already more prominent black filmmakers tackling race. I think he wanted to focus specifically on misogyny. At the same time, this didn't really go far enough. I think. I think. If this, I feel like an unrated cut of this movie would be the best because it would go all out. Didn't, wouldn't care who it offended. Just showcased all of these hateful people that that are based on people that do exist and how these four teenage girls are working to fight back. And I almost wonder if this didn't suffer from MPAA cuts. Like, I wonder what an unrated version of this movie would look like, because I think I would like that much more. 
But suffice to say that if you're wanting a millennial, you know, the millennial generations or even like Gen Zs, because this does feature focus on uh, the generation uh, below me, the the younger generation, Gen Z. If you want that kind of um, exploitation film, I'd say watch this. This tackles the subject matter way better than The Perch has been doing. And I love it for that. So if you get the chance to see it, check it out if you're into like that sort of grindhouse style film because that's exactly what this is for the most part salutations ladies and gentlemen it's the popcorn junkie here for a little netflix and chat all right All right. The main thing I watched on streaming this week, as I mentioned, was the Walking With series, and that for those and for those who've forgotten, that's BBC Earth's uh, production of nature documentaries of Walking with Dinosaurs, the spinoff Big The Battle of Big Al, the sequel series Walking with Beasts and Prehistoric Beasts, technically, but Walking with Beasts for short, and the prequel series Walking with Monsters. So I watched all of these through Curiosity Stream because BBC Earth has partnered with them, and I'll say that I they still hold up for the most part. Um, I, I, I've just been really into dinosaurs lately. I've rediscovered my love of dinosaurs, and I've been all about them lately. And I'll break it down like this: Walking with Dinosaurs is the first, I think, still the best. It holds up the most. Uh, it's use it's CGI is kind of old. I think a, a, I think it might do for a retouching or a remaster at some point but the puppetry is work, works great the narrative uh kenneth Branagh narrates all of these and he does a great job and ballad of big owl is a great spinoff that focuses specifically on a on a fossil of an allosaurus and speculates what his life would have been like based on what we know from his fossils and walking with prehistoric beast was a great continuation that covered the next chapter of the story the uh Canozoic, the story of the Canozoic and the rise of man I think that's great, but I do think it's the most flawed. And then Walking with Monsters, I think, is the best looking of them all. And is a, it features the beginnings of life as well. And it showcases just how radically different things used to be prior to uh, the Cainozoic and it's even the Mesozoic. You know, the rise of things like fish, of arthropods, how they've changed, mutated, and uh, evolved through the years. Reptile, you know how amphibians, be, what how amphibians adapted to become reptiles, and eventually how those reptiles led to the rise of mammals and birds. It's a very it, I, watching the whole series in order was a great choice. It works great to watch. Monst, start with monsters, lead up to dinosaurs, lead up, and watch through prehistoric beasts, and I'll get you through the present. And it's a great series. I still think it holds up. And if you've got Curiosity Stream through uh, Amazon, which is how I watched it, I highly recommend it. And then uh, as I, if I would rank them, I'd say Di- well, Dinosaurs are still the top. I think that's the best one out of all of them. Uh, Monsters, I think, is the best because it, it, it's, so, it's gotten so far with the graphics that it, looks the, that it looks the best. And it even showcases how the different features began to evolve by, by zooming into the bodies. So you got to see the evolution of lungs, of hearts, of scales, of teeth. It's a really wonderful um, showcase of how evolution works. Uh, I would say Ballad of Big Al is the next best one. And then the last one is Walking with Prehistoric Beasts, only because 
it's the most flawed. It's it suffers from these whole bullet time events. Like every episode has a whole thing where it's like, oh hey, we discovered how to do bullet time. Let's showcase it in every episode of the series. Yeah, it's it's not it, it doesn't hold up. Also, it looks the the hair and fur look weird in some cases, and some of the uh, stories aren't as compelling. Uh, but at the same time, like I think the best one of the prehistoric beasts is the Smilodon one that takes place in South America, uh, Sabretooth. But like the, well, how they tried to do Australopithecus, the difference between the CG and the and the puppet is jarring. So I think that one could also do with a remaster and better graphics. Uh, I know some people aren't into that, but you know what? That's the one part about the the Star Wars re-releases that I'm okay with. The fact that you're retooling the graphics to make them look even better. You know, as technology progresses, we sh- you know, it doesn't hurt to go back and retouch some things. How the I think the problem is keep the old ones available, but then if you but touch but take the the effects, touch them up, make them look nicer with the new technology and release the new ones. Under the you know under the name remixed or reloaded or remastered you know something like that say hey we fixed up the effects on this to make it look better if you want to watch this version as opposed to that version you can but the both versions are available that's what I think is the best uh, so yeah that was my docu- that was my dinosaur kick then this leads perfectly into my into my discussion topic documentaries so we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we'll be talking documentaries. I think for the first time on this uh, series. You. You out there. Do you know what horror is? You like horror films. You like gore. You want to hear four badass women discuss and dissect modern and classic horror films. Join us at Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, a good ghoul's guide to horror. Oh! On the Gummy Cat Don't read the Latin. Do you know that in the world of the insane, you will find a kind of truth more terrifying backstory into documentaries for the history portion i think i'll truncate that for the most part i don't need to go too in depth i'm way over time anyway for a discussion so suffice to say that documentaries were part of the initial stages of film and filmmaking the early days of the of the cam of the camera and of and of cinematography and of you know people utilizing this new technology were for mundane stuff stuff of you know people working at a dock or people walking down the street the sort of sort of like showcasing ooh we're recapturing events through this new technology and that was the that was kind of, those were the first films to be made uh with this new technology. And then it took until uh, there was a um, Polish businessman named Boleslas Matuszewski who began recording surgical procedures for educational purposes and even and recorded about 30 of these procedures uh, in order to showcase just how doctors would perform these procedures for medical students. 
you know, to see. And then um, this was in 1896, not 1996. That's way too late for that. That's a century of film (laughs) by that point. Uh, But 1896 was when this was going on. And then around the same time, 1898, uh, a a a Romanian uh, professor of neurology named Gheorghe Marinescu Marinescu Gheorghe Marinescu I have to look. I have to look at the pronunciations. I want to get this right. Uh, but he recorded uh, educational films in order to showcase his, his study of neurology for neurology students to understand. Here's how these things work by recording these sort of scientific uh, films for them to see. He did this between 1898 and 1901, and then during the early 20th century, we saw a rise in travel logs. That became the new documentary style film. I'm not sure. I, you, we did see the rise of narrative film at this point, but documentary-wise, the main, the big push was travel log, showcasing, "Hey, visit this city. Here's what it looks like." Uh, and then we've got two real pushes for narrative uh, when it comes to documentaries, telling a story, and both of them I like to refer to as the birth of a nation, the birth, the two birth of a nations for documentary film. The first one, the earlier one, was called In the Land of the Headhunters. And it was a faked, staged documentary about Native Americans. And I'm assuming it's horribly racist if you look at it today. But it was the first documentary to actually feature stories and recreations. So it's technically history, which is why I compare it to Birth of a Nation. It's a horrible piece of trash, but it started a tra- but it led to what we know as film today. So it's historically relevant. <sighs> Anyway, uh, the uh, the later one was um, where is it? Uh, it's later on that line. But Robert J. Flaherty's 1992 movie *Nanook of the North* added some more artistic elements and brought in like the sort of romanticism to documentary filmmaking. Uh, but he all, but his was also staged and probably horribly. Ra- I don't even think the. The the per, the Nanook was even played by a, a, a native Eskimo, uh, not even Eskimo, native Inuit. Uh, I think it was like a white person in fur. I don't know. I just know that Nanook in the North is also notorious for the same reason. It's staged and it it romanticize it it, it, it misrepresents um, Inuit culture. And I don't even think it was an Inuit playing the so called Nanook. So there you go. Uh, Mean, uh, but while that you know, so while those are kind of the the, the impetus for narrative-driven uh, documentaries, we did start to see uh, filmmakers tackling biographies. Uh, there were even uh, experiments using color with uh, Kinemacolor and Prismacolor. While Technicolor was focusing on Hollywood and that sort, those kinds of films. Kinemacolor was the biggest one at the time, and Prismacolor, they started applying these color technologies to travelogues in 1912 and 1919, respectively. Then, of course, you've got Australian photographer Frank Hurley, who released a documentary called South, which was about Ernest Shackleton's failed 1914 Antarctic expedition. So that's kind of the first feature-length documentary that uh, that we would know of, and I think that would I, I would much rather unless that somehow be, was also secret you know turned out to be horribly racist in return. I think that's a much more prominent sort of imp- inspiration for what would become document documentary history. 
uh, as things went along, there's a series called Sym- City Symphony Films, which started to uh, use modern art techniques to influence to influence the filmmaking style. So they would feel like a mixture of sort of um, art, de- like these new artistic movements in uh, visual art and also narrative film, you know, documentary filmmaking. Then, of course, in the, then of course, uh, the Soviet Union uh, uh, sort of pioneered the idea of the newsreel series with Kino Pravda, and you know, around the twenties is when we saw the rise of the newsreel, which is the biggest style of documentary filmmaking for the first half of the twentieth century, uh, alongside propaganda. You know, and while Lenny Riefenstahl was the main propagandist documentarian there were definitely propaganda filmmakers in the uk canada the us pretty much everywhere as the you know as the lead into world war ii we saw a big rise in countries you know the governments utilizing their you know documentary filmmaking to push an agenda and propaganda film saw a rise in there and we see it still today may not be brought to us by the government but it's definitely there to push an agenda uh, and of course, uh, after the war, we saw uh, French New Wave and Cinema Verite, uh, the, the sort of French artistic movements and filmmaking, also incorporate that into the documentaries at the time. And they started to make documentaries more kinetic, more so than just interview, inter- interviews with people. It, became, it began to f- you know, use more you know, life, you know, bring more life to documentaries at the time, you know, which was at the time more stale and, you know, like a lecture. Um, you know, of course, at the same time, Disney was a major proponent of documentaries, but, you know, as as is, you know, as is true of his infamous Lemmings documentary, he is known for staging a lot of information and also misleading the public in the, in order to promote more a, a more compelling narrative. This has been a problem with documentaries since the since the early days, folks. This isn't a new thing, and of course, we've also got the rise of, pro, of propaganda in the, during the sixties and seventies in order to push neo-colonialism and capitalism in Latin America. So fun times there. But theaters began to showcase documentaries more so in the eighties. So that's when you saw the rise of studios and releasing documentaries to the movie going public. Because before then, it was more so like you would sh- see it wouldn't be released the same way that a major Hollywood motion picture would be at the time. But with the advent, with the changes in distribution models, and with the rise of what we now, you know, the theaters we know now, we begin to see uh, studios willing to showcase these documentary films alongside their more mainstream narrative films and you know narrative fictional films, narrative fiction films. And this is about the same time where we got to see directors like Errol Morris and Michael Moore begin to create this new subgenre of documentary, the Mondo Cinema, they call it. And it was uh, it's the idea of the documentarian becoming the centerpiece of the, of the movie and even including reenactments, not, documenta- not documenting life as it happens, but recreating elements and certain and certain scenes and documentarians are definitely there's there's definitely a divide between whether or not that's considered true documentary filmmaking or not i'll get into that i'll get into my feelings more later on but yeah 
it's definitely a, a, a big sticking point with, uh, you know, film, hist- film uh, I guess, philosophers or film, uh, you know, film people, film studies people. Uh, reality TV, the rise of reality TV began to uh, incorp- you know, incorporate these documentary styles, but... Like their predecess- like those notorious predecessors, they would fake a lot of the stuff, but make it seem like it was real. So even though it, everything is narratively driven and fictional, it's presented as though it's actually happening. And it tricks people into thinking this is reality. And it's also cheap to make, which is why it rose to such high prominence. But unfortunately, the biggest problem with documentaries is that they are hard to finance. Because while major studios have no problem financing like tentpole movies or even dramas that might cater towards critics, not a lot of people are going to finance documentaries. So either you've got them through organizations like National Geographic, through governments, uh, through grants, or, or you've got networks pushing them on people and financing them to placate to their tastes and their and their and their you know the though they're you know they're beholden to producers to tell a certain story of their way rather than to just let the documentary play out that was a big problem for the longest time and uh but that we we've seen some changes to that with the rise of uh Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu, all these new services that are willing to share documentaries with people without, you know, to cover the distribution. But the, the, the problem still becomes, I don't think Netflix finances its documentaries, you know, I think they just buy them. So the problem still becomes, how do you finance the filmmaking process? And that's a big problem within the documentary filmmaking uh, uh, industry. Uh, the only other things I, I, I should mention are, you know, there's behind the scenes documentaries for movies. Those are, um, those have become more prominent during the eighties and nineties and are, you know, as, as both special features on DVDs and home video and as for promotional material for, uh, for the studio to say, here's how we made the film. And of course, there's a small subgenre of, like every, there's so many subgenres of documentary, but the biggest one to to mention is uh the what is called what is known for uh what is known as the documentaries without words the idea that no narration like that's the thing you know doc, we know documentaries as like lectures like you know like you're in college receiving a lecture from a professor that's what most documentaries are played as um it's somebody presenting what is supposed to be the facts to you the the viewer and there was a, there is a, there is a small subgenre that doesn't use narration. It just presents the images as they are on screen and lets that tell the story without any words. And the main, main, uh, main, main uh, entry in this subgenre is the Katsi trilogy, Koyanis Katsi, that whole trilogy of movies, and a movie called Baraka. There, you know, they try to show, they try to tell the story without any words just through the images alone. And it's a nice little subgenre of documentary filming showcasing more of its artistic side. But, um, it, you know, and of course there's, there are a lot of, um, you know, most documentaries are showcased through the film festival circuit and specifically through documentary film festivals, which of course there is one in my area called the chagrin falls documentary film festival. And my parents, are big fans of it. They love to see the, the documentaries being shown there because chances are they'll never get to see anything like them anywhere else. 
and like we get the it gets the it gets the likes of Colin Hanks and other you know other other Hollywood people who get involved in the documentary process to come and speak. Uh, I think Colin Hanks has produced a bunch of documentaries, so he 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 shows up. Uh, he's shown up that he's supposed to show up there, and um, you know, if, and, and it's a great if you've got a. Uh, a film festival that showcases documentaries and you want to see good doc, you know, and you want to see what documentary films are out there being made, go check it out. I highly recommend it. I just know I don't, probably won't have the time to support the Chagrin Falls one just because I got to work, man. You know, I got to pay my bills. And of course, um, I'd be, uh, I, 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 you know, I shouldn't neglect the whole, you know, Oscar category specifically for documentary films. Um, I do want to pull up some of the winners of uh, previous documentary uh, films. But in the meantime, uh, I do want to mention that it was. Hold on, let me pull up my notes for a second so I know what I'm talking about here. Um, uh, it, it didn't start uh, showing document, you know, acknowledging documentaries. It was they did showcase um, documentaries before they started uh, acknowledging animated movies. Uh, this is pretty early on. The first uh, Oscar was in 1928, uh, but and they didn't start acknowledging documentaries uh, until before. I think they acknowledged documentaries before they even acknowledged foreign films, foreign language films, and uh, so the first documentaries to be acknowledged by the. Uh, Uh, by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, it, uh, they were um, uh, the, the, in 1941 in the uh, I forget which um, okay the 14th Academy Awards they gave special awards for um, the documentaries. Kukan and Target for Tonight. I have no idea what those are about. But starting in 1942, they released a... Uh, they released a, a, a specific category for uh, documentary uh, films, feature, feature-length documentaries. The shorts would come uh, later on. But uh, bet, you know, some of the best-known um, documentaries in this category include... Uh, uh, well, there's a documentary on Woodstock that won one year. Uh, Manny Skeet Everest, Scared Straight, apparently won uh, in 1978. Uh, makes me feel like dancing. The Times of Harvey Milk. Um, there's a tie in 1986 for Artie Shaw. This is Time Is All I've All You've Got and Down and Out in America. Uh, the Witten Legend of the Algonquin Roundtable, uh, won in 1987. A lot of cool stuff. Uh, Panama Deception, uh, Maya Lin, Anne Frank Remembered, When We Were Kings. Uh, I think later on, during during the later like 90s and 2000s, when you'll start to see here, Bowling for Columbine won in 2002, Fog of War, Born in the Brothels, March of the Penguins, 2005, and Inconvenient Truth, 2006. Taxi to the Dark Side, Man on Wire, The Cove. This is when, like, the best-known documentaries start to come out. Uh, Inside Job, Undefeated, Searching for Sugarman, 20 Feet from Stardom, 
Amy, OJ Made in America, and last year's winner, uh, Icarus, which is about uh, the Russian doping scandal. So uh, I am not, I'm not entirely sure what all, I, I'm assuming that Fahrenheit 11.9 will probably get nominated, and then uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Won't You Be My Neighbor? Will get nominated for sure. I'm interested to see what they will, what else they'll acknowledge. Because I mean, Netflix has really. Uh, this is one of their sort of, you know, bread and butter. Uh, the square. I remember the square in 2013 being nominated. And I was pushing for that to win, uh, but they've also like since 2013. They've I think every year they've had some some you know some movie uh, nominated in the one of their movie one of their you know licensed documentaries featured in. The you know nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, what happened, Miss Simone, was a Netflix documentary, as was Winter on Fire. So they had two in 2015. Uh, Fire at Sea, I think, was them. Maybe not. Thirteenth uh, was them that was nominated, uh, and then of course Icarus was a Netflix documentary that did win. It's their first Netflix. It's their first documentary licensed through them that ended up winning the Academy Award. So yeah, I mean Netflix is this is one of their real shining. You know, when it comes to critical accolades, this is where they really get to shine. And then, uh, yeah, so I mean, it's document. I think that's the thing is that people there's a really niche audience for documentaries, and sadly, like three people were at my showing of Fahrenheit eleven nine today, and I think it's just because. I think people prefer documentaries on TV than in, than going to the theaters for them, unless they are really driven. Unless it's heard, unless they hear it's really good, or unless it's a subject matter that's really prominent, and or you know, unless it like that's the thing. March for the Penguins was a cultural phenomenon when it came out, so it's any wonder that that you know that that it got got that it got a lot of praise and it ended up winning the Academy Award that year. And it's just not a lot of documentary. People aren't going to go out to see a doc. Like it, that's why it's easier to just sit back, watch a documentary on like Netflix or something. That's why I think. So I don't know if two. I think they'll will could will continue to see documentaries get wide distribution in theaters because they, they did make a stipulation in I believe 2009 or so, or maybe 2013. The Academy uh, made made a requirement that for a feature length documentary. You need to have been reviewed in either the New York or LA Times, or be commercially re- and be commercially released to to theaters in order to qualify. And so I think that's why we're seeing a rise in, um, and of course that specifically means LA. It has to have been in LA for at least two weeks to qualify for the Academy Awards. So I think seeing this rise, it, seeing this emphasis on seeing theatrical distribution. Is given to a rise in what movies get seen by people. So I mean, there's a chance that you could see a you know a nominee for best documentary feature feature at the Academy Awards in theaters in where where you live, depending on what kind of theaters are near you. And of course, it depends on the theater owners because I know the you know a couple of theater owners near me do like the feature independent and you know lesser known movies, lesser shown movies. Um, there's even a there's even a couple of theaters dedicated to showcasing these sort of things, and you know it's I I, I just you know it's it's sad to see that 
those aren't going to get the traction that a big budget blockbuster is going to get, or even like a you know a, a critically acclaimed drama. And I think it's just because so, unless it's something that they are really interested about, or unless it's something that's that demands audiences see it on the big screen, they would much rather wait for it to. I mean, with the advent of home media, home distribution, and home video. They would much rather wait to see it on DVD or wait to see it uh, on Netflix or Amazon Prime now. So, I, which, I, which is nice that Amazon Prime, Hulu, and, and Netflix are showcasing more documentaries because that means that more documentaries get a chance to be seen by audiences, even if it's just on a, there's televisions at home. So that's kind of the that's, that's I think I got it through everything, but yeah, that's kind of the history of documentaries up to this point. So as for me. What I think makes a what I think um, makes a good documentary, the biggest thing is the facts have to be verifiable. What you're presenting as fact should be certified fact, and that's a biggest big problem in the documentary. And we, as we've as we've you know as I've discussed, that's a big problem in in the history of documentary filmmaking is that filmmakers will fake things. Filmmakers will fake. Um, will stage events in order to present a narrative, and. One of the most notorious of this that's apolitical for the most part is um, Super Size Me, which I think was nominated but didn't win that year. Let me see. Super Size Me was like, what, 2004, 2005? Yeah, it was Super Size Me. Um, 2003 would have come out. So Morgan Spurlock made Super Size Me. It's what his best no- he's best known for. And yet scientists have tried to recreate his his whole experiment and nobody's been able to duplicate his results so you've got a guy who who does this whole experiment of only eating mcdonald's for i think like a month and if they said would you like to supersize he had to say it i think i think he did end up leading to the disillusion of the of the supersize um feature it from uh from restaurateurs and from concessioners. Because I remember there's a big thing. I used to work at Burger King in 2013. No, it would have been 2006. Way before. 2013 was been after college. Uh, but I worked at Burger King in 2006. So it would have been three years after Super Size Me. We still had the king size. A couple years later, I during college, I go back to a Burger King and notice... That when I ordered a medium, it had the same colors as what the larges were when I worked at Burger King. Because they color-coded the sizes. Red used to be medium. Blue used to be large. Yellow used to be king size. And they then they condensed it so that small was red, medium was blue, and large was yellow. They upsized everything so that they could get rid of the of the supersized model, and I think it's just because that finally let, there was finally a big enough pushback from from uh, from the business side of things to get rid of the supersized model. I don't know if Morgan Spurlock had anything to do with it at all. I think he did, but I think he might have. But suffice to say that it, it it ultimately did change the industry, not exactly for the better, but it got rid of the king. It got rid of the supersized model. <laughs> And you even see that in movie theaters, the popcorn sizes. You saw the size. You, you, if you were born before Super Size Me, 
way before Super Size Me. If you were, you know, if you were a, if, if you were old enough to remember life before Super Size Me, you will remember the size differences, and you will notice that around, say, two thousand nine, maybe two thousand ten, maybe later, um, the sizes changed, and you're not sure how. The reason was they got rid of the Super Size everywhere. I don't know if it was a mandate. I don't know if it was the, the it was self regulation by the by by you know food concessioners and food distributors to uh, to get rid of it. As maybe there was a public pushback against the super size. Maybe they weren't making as much money after the documentary, but they condensed the sizes so that the super size is the new large. And yeah, but at the same time, when scientists try to recreate. Morgan Spurlock's experiment, they, not, nobody could recreate the results. And I think things like that where documentarians have to be held accountable for, for, for showcase, showing to us that what they present is the truth. Because if it's not, then you're, you're breaking that promise that you make. It's the same reason I don't like too much, differ, I don't like too much deviation from the truth in bio, biographical films biopics i want if you are presenting what is supposed to be the truth the the events of what happened you need to be beholden to the truth no matter what you should not have to deviate from the truth in order to present some version of the truth in order to benefit in order to push some kind of narrative that's not and especially that's and while biopics can get away with that more documentarians should not Get away with that. And they should always be held accountable. Um, so that's my biggest thing. Uh, after that, having, a, having that narrative structure, always, you know, it definitely helps, pro, helps make the documentary more, remem- more memorable. Because without that whole, without following the whole, you know, rising action, climax sort of thing, without, fo- without having those ebbs and flows in the storyline... Of your documentary of presenting, you know, of, of the course of events, people aren't going to be interested. People are just if it just feels like a lecture, it's not always going to catch people's attention. So it has to have those sorts of flourishes in order to be really memorable. And you know, good documentary. There are good documentaries that follow that structure, where it's not specifically like a thesis paper. It's more like a film. And those are the ones that are more memorable, like March of the Penguins. That's, you know, people love that one because it feels like you're watching a movie, but it's a documentary about penguins. Um, and, of course, having the good narrator always helps. Morgan Freeman, uh, Kenneth Branagh, um, Tom Hanks. Has Tom Hanks done one? I want to say Tom Hanks has done one. But, yeah, having those people with good – Samuel L. Jackson has done a, has done a couple uh, documentary narr- narrations, I believe. Having a good narrator, if that's what you're going for – Always helps, whether it's the director narrating or they get a good, an actor to narrate narrate the the documentary. Having that good narrator voice helps a lot. And then, uh, my, and then of course, the big question: Should the documentarian be in front of the camera or not? And my position is: the best documentaries shouldn't focus on the filmmaker. The director should not be the centerpiece of the movie. It should be the storyline he's presented, he or she is presenting. And at the same time, I'm not going to 
if, if a documentarian like Michael Moore or Morgan Spurlock does center, you know, it does make themselves the centerpiece, it not doesn't make it a bad documentary. It does distract a lot from the by making you the centerpiece. Now you're the one. Now you're the center. Of, now you're you know, you're the one leading the story, and a good documentarian should be in the background. He should be the one presenting the facts as they unfold to us, you know, documenting the events. They shouldn't be the one, they shouldn't be the one leading the events, so to speak. And I think that's the problem you get with a lot of that sort of Mondo style documentary filmmaking. So I get why it's contentious in the, in the, in the, in the uh, industry, but I don't, and I don't hate it. It's not my personal preference. And then, my favorite documentaries that I've seen, uh, the two this year that are already on my best of list, uh, Fahrenheit 11.9 and Won't You Be My Neighbor. Two exquisite documentaries that are perfect for this point in time. Uh, aside from that, other ones that I've, de- you know, that, I've, that I've put on my favorites list and best of lists in the past, uh, Dinosaur 13, which is about uh, Sue. I love that one. Uh, 2013, Blackfish, The Cove. A Band Called Death is a great one. Uh, the Square that I mentioned on Netflix, that's a great one. Uh, Spielberg from HBO is good. And uh, 20 Feet from Stardom uh, is good. Is another good one. Walk, the Walking With series. BBC does some solid... BBC, National Geographic, and PBS, some of the best sources of that more traditional documentary-style filmmaking. Highly recommend them. Um, I remember seeing Food Inc. It's been a while. I recommend that. And I'm pretty sure I saw Hearts of Darkness. If not, that's another one I need to revisit. That's a great one. It's about the remaking of Apocalypse Now. And then, of course, the ones I really want to see. Uh, I need to check back in with the rest of my more filmography to see what I've been missing. Life, uh, the actual life itself. Uh, the other, the good life itself. The one about Richard, uh, not Richard. That's for Richard Roper. But Roger Ebert. I want to see. I need to see that. Thirteenth, uh, Ava DuVernay's documentary about the Thirteenth Amendment. Cave of Forgotten Dreams, Werner Herzog. Uh, Amy, which is on Netflix. A bunch of these are on Netflix. Uh, Lost Soul, which is basically Hearts of Darkness, but for a guy with Doctor Moreau from the nineties. It's it's insane. Electric Boogaloo, which is about uh, Canon Pictures, and then I Am Not Your Negro, which is about John Baldwin, I believe, um, the black, uh, 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 prominent black activist and writer and per, you know car- uh, per- person uh, you know prominent figure in black culture during the sixties and seventies. Um, I I. I, I really need to check that one out. I think that, a bunch of these are on Netflix. I just need to, at what point when I have the time, I need to go through the ne- Netflix's documentary queue and just check, check all those off and just check them all out. Cause I, I, I've been neglecting documentaries as part of my film enjoyment. And, you know, as a kid who grew up with discovery and animal planet documentaries, I love documentary stuff. I love nature stuff. I love seeing, uh, there's a great, Art, art, there's a great artistry to documentary filmmaking that I feel like needs to be showcased more. So maybe I'll do like a documentary corner uh, feature or something. But yeah, I, I need to take some time out to watch more documentaries because I've been neglecting, I've been neglecting that for a long time. And especially since they're so widely available now, I have no excuse. 
So that about does it for the discussion. So let's move on through the final segments. First up, the box office report. And now the popcorn junkie checks in with this week's box office report. I forgot to mention during the review, but um, Assassination Nation is part of Neon, which I mentioned during the A24 episode as the sort of competition. And Neon is doing a lot of good work at... A24 has got a lot of competition coming from them, and I'm glad because, hey, if both of you make good stuff to compete with each other, I benefit. So that's that's always good. Um, I bring that up because Assassination Nation and Life Itself didn't even make the top 10. They premiered in at 15 and 11, respectively. And it's they don't list their budgets on uh, Box Office Mojo. So if we go to a quick Wikipedia search... Um, Assassination Nation uh, brought in, like, I think a million dollars this weekend. Let me double check. Uh, budget, uh, not even list on the Wikipedia page. That's fine. Um, five million, I'll say five to ten million. We'll, 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 we'll guesstimate for that. Um, it only brought in the million dollars this opening weekend. So, like Mission Impossible Fallout is in fewer theaters, but made more money. So maybe it'll pick up, but we'll have to wait and see. This may end up being one of those, um, you know, things that finds life on DVD. And then Life itself ha- doesn't have list its box doesn't list its uh, budget either. But if we compare it to Danny, uh, Danny Collins, uh, Dan Fogelman's previous movie. It's probably a bit cheaper than that, but if we check, if we take a look at that one um, and compare it, that one cost ten million to make. Uh, if we compare it to Meet Earl and the Dying Girl, his uh, well, that was not one of his films; that was one he act he produced. But you know, just to be safe, if we compare it to that, that one cost eight million to make, and if we look at so if we guesstimate that once again, five to ten million dollars. That life itself only brought in two million dollars, so it really both of those seem to seem to be floundering even with their minimal budgets. So either so I, I, it'll be hard to say if they even hold up. But uh, yeah, dropping out of and then of course premiering just below the top seven, we've got Fahrenheit eleven nine, which I'm guessing probably cost probably a million or two to make. What did Michael Moore's last documentary cost? Because I'm guessing it's probably no more than that. Michael Moore. Uh, where's uh, 11.9? Here, let's... 11.9. Okay, budget was 4 to 5 million. Brought in 3. So it's probably going to make back its budget uh, within the next week. Uh, we'll see if Life Itself or Assassination Nation can do any better. But yeah, those have all premiered below the top 7 even. Only... F- Fahrenheit 11.9 was able to make it into the top 10. And then dropping out of the top 7 was the Meg, finally. So, it made its money. It's doing fine. Uh, so, number 7 this week was last week's number 6, which was Peppermint, which brought in $3.7 million, bringing its domestic gross up to $30 million, and, and, with a combo- and with an extra 6 from the foreign markets, $36 million. So, it made back its budget, but it's not doing, do, not doing well enough to be considered a true success. Um... 
We'll, we'll see if it can manage to eke out a profit by the end of its run, but so far it's not. It, people aren't being people aren't all that attracted to it. Uh, number six was last week's number four. White boy Rick brought in five million dollars even this weekend, which brings its domestic gross up to seventeen million, which still means it's only made back about a little over half its budget of twenty nine million dollars. So this one's not doing as well as Sony, I guess, thought it would. So that so we'll see if it gets a pushback from uh, any sort of uh, award show nominations. Uh, but yeah, it's I think it costs too much, and it just it just I think if it waited a couple a little bit longer, if it got the real award season push, it might have done better. Staying at number five is Crazy Rich Asians, which brought in six point five million dollars this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to one hundred fifty nine million, and its worldwide gross up to two hundred million dollars. So thirty on a, a thirty million dollar movie making two hundred million dollars worldwide, good good on Crazy Rich Asians. Proof that you know it doesn't matter what color the leads are. You can as long as the movie is good, people will see it. Dropping down from number one to number four, sixty four percent loss is the Predator, which brought in eight point seven million dollars this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to forty million dollars. And its worldwide grows up to $94 million, almost $100 million. The foreign market saved this movie. In fact, who's the highest grosser from the foreign markets? It's not China. Uh, $4 million from Russia. Russia seems to be the biggest fan of this movie. And then the UK. But, yeah, so the foreign markets are digging this movie. Uh, specifically, Japan with $2 million, Russia with 4 and a half, and U- and the UK with 3 but people, you know, the foreign markets are will see a Predator movie because they don't care if it sucks. <laughs> they don't they don't need to worry about the story. But at the same, but it's definitely dropping uh, in America. So it'll probably do. It'll probably make back its money in the for, you know thanks to the foreign markets. But it's not. It's definitely fallen. <laughs> it, people are taking notice of it here. Uh, dropping down from number two to number three is the Nun, which brought in ten point ten in the quarter million dollars. Bringing its domestic total up to a hundred million, and its foreign total up to a and it's combined with the foreign total, we've got a two hundred ninety-two million dollar movie off a twenty-two million dollar budget. Yeah, the people are people. James Wan still brings in the audiences. They don't care if it sucks or not. It's it, this is the kind of horror they want. And going up from number three to number two. Is a simple favor. I think this is one of the few. I mentioned a couple of rises since covering the box office, but rising in in the in the box office numbers to number two this weekend is a simple favor, which brought in ten point four million dollars, bringing its domestic gross up to thirty two million and its worldwide gross up to forty forty two. Uh, no no budget listed for that. Uh, if we check Wikipedia. Says twenty million, so it's doubled its budget. So it's doubled its budget. So anything from here on out is profit. So good for the movie. It you know people are people are drawn people have become drawn to it, and that's good for it. Uh, and then premiering at number one this weekend is the house with a clock in its walls, which brought in twenty six point eight million dollars, and combined with the foreign market, brought in the total of twenty nine point nine million dollars, almost thirty million. But on a forty-two million dollar budget, so unless they can, this can last long enough uh, 
if it can keep people's attention long enough, it might make back some of its money. But so far, it's had a very weak premiere. Even though it's number one of the box office, their numbers aren't there to finance the movie back. And I think it's just because people are uh, have grown out of the Harry Potter knock. I don't even think the Harry Potter... That's the thing. If you're going to try and co-opt Harry Potter, you better have something else to provide. A story that's as compelling as those Harry Potter books were, for the most part. And those movies were. And when you don't, the style flourishes aren't going to keep people's attention. You need to have that story. And the, even though it premiered at number one, we'll have to wait and see if it can make back its budget. But that was uh, this weekend's box office. And so, now that we've like, taken a look at the past, we must take, take a look forward to the future and, this up, and the upcoming releases. Coming this summer... It's Trailer Talk. Rated R starts Friday. There are a couple. There are a couple of releases, and I'm not quite certain if they'll get a, if I'll get the chance to see them. The main ones being um, the Old Man and the Gun, starring Robert Redford, and uh, Pure Flix's Little Women adaptation. Uh, yeah, it's it. It'll be interesting to see if. Any of those get a wide release, a wide enough release that I'll be able to see them uh, this week. But uh, the big releases this weekend. First up, we've got Tiffany Haddish continuing her hot streak this year with alongside Kevin Hart in Night School. So, teach what are the test results, Teddy? You, my friend, are dyslexic. You also have dyscalculia. That's what I got. We're not done. You also have a processing disorder. I got a touch of prostate cancer. She didn't touch my ass one time. Boy. That's what my thoughts in yeah. the nighttime. Welcome to night school. We need to Ooh, stir fry. High school into a semester. Study group. Study group. Study group. <laughs> okay, Rob. Conventional <laughs> way. Just isn't going to get it done. Why are we in ring? What's the square root of 81? What? What's this the square root of 81? I don't know what you're talking about. Square root. What is it? Oh, God. Oh. This woman. This is the September. You either passed the midterm or you're out of my class. We're going to have to it's dumb as hate. I am where I'm supposed to be. At a fast food joint next to a strip club. If I stand in the right spot, I can smell cocoa butter and fried chicken at the same time. Take this suit off. We're gonna take this test. You trying to get your GED? Yes. You can get out my way, bitch. Baba. Ready to get started? I'm not playing with you. What's the capital of Belgium? Waffles? What? That is not the answer! Oh, yes. uh, I think that MMA scene. You got it right, Teddy. What does that smell? Now that's a gas. Are you bust ass? Yeah. Face? It's in my mouth. You got my lips all checked. Yeah, that, that whole segment is probably going to be my least favorite, but... I, I, I dig, I dig the combination. Uh, Kevin Hart is hit or miss with me. I think he's, all, I think he's really one note. 
But I love Tiffany Haddish, and the re- and the supporting cast seems to be really good. So we'll give it a shot. We'll we'll see if it if it lands at all. Um, and then also this weekend we finally get the release of Warner Brothers Animation's Smallfoot. Uh, after getting delayed for well over a year, uh, we've got um, Smallfoot released in theaters. So ta- here's a look at that trailer. A monster! It came at me from out of the sky. And it made a sound like... Okay, this is revealing a lot more of the storyline here. Then I saw it. A mythical creature I had only heard existed in legend. Look at your small foot! Get it? It's toilet paper. This proves nothing. Like I know what I saw, and I'm gonna prove it. Yeah, I think if you watch this trailer, you don't need to watch the movie. This fall. Okay, that was, that's cute. I see you, Warner Brothers. That was cute. I do like the dichotomy of um, the fact that they can't understand each other, and so the the Yeti will hear um, uh, uh, will hear like while the uh, human will hear. That's a nice. That's a nice touch. Uh. Sorry, it was uh, I got distracted because this was a yet another tra- YouTube trailer that oh, that only that that combined two trailers into one. Why did I just need to find the right channels and only utilize them? I think movie clips is probably the best one. I think I'll I'll just stick with them. There's there, there's so many bad channels out there. What was that one? Film Select. This one that was I think Film Select is another one of the notorious ones that will combine multiple trailers into one to lengthen the runtime to trick the algorithm. But um yeah, Smallfoot should be interesting. Um I mean, I don't think it'll be great, but I think it'll I think it's a unique enough premise that it can stand out on its own. So we'll see how Warner Brothers does with that one. Uh and then lastly, we've got uh who's producing this? Who are the people behind this? Um I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, Gregory Plotkin is the director, and 
He is best known as the editor of Get Out and Happy Death Day, but he also directed Paranormal Activity, The Ghost Dimension, in 2015. So he's mainly an editor, but this is, you know, he's breaking out into directing now, and he's directing Hellfest. Let me see one of the producers. Um, Alex Gino, Mark Ross, nobody I recognize. So this is coming right out of nowhere. I have no idea who's bringing me this movie. But it's Hellfest. So right in time for the spoopy season, we've got Hellfest. So let's take a look at that trailer. Kind of looks like uh, Cedar Point. Welcome to Hellfest. Where your screams come true. Ooh, Tony Todd is the like the circus ma- ringleader. Nice. Lionsgate CBS. Nat? Oh my god, you're here? What? It's Halloween. I've got his VIP passes to Hellfest. What is that? It's a traveling horror night. Has horror mazes in it. You would totally lose it in there. It's gonna be fun, right? <laughs> Why are we signing a waiver? Well, because the liability is... Hey, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> a couple years ago, some girl got totally gutted. Killer left her body in the park for three days. They thought she was a freaking prop. Some people are just evil. They walk among us. Yeah, this should be interesting. This is, I like this premise. No, move. From an from an executive producer of The Walking Dead. That's their that's their own. The scares are fake. The evil is real. Yeah, real. This fall, it's fun going in. It's hell getting out. You take your job too seriously. This really isn't funny, dude. Help me! Came here to be scared, right? I can't arrest people for doing their job. Welcome to Hellfest. I, I I think I recognize that security officer. Great logo too. Hello. Hey, can you let me out of here? It's here, September twenty eighth. Ooh, a great tagline, too. It's fun going in. It's hell getting out. Um, who's that security officer? Let me see. He almost looks like H. John Benjamin. Uh, but I'm not I'm not seeing a park goer, booth worker, gate guard, um, attendee, ride attendant, uh, cop, little girl security. Michael Turek. Is the security guard. Uh, he is a prison guard in Logan Lucky. He was somebody in Office Christmas Party. He's on Ozark as Ash. So I guess maybe people who watch that will recognize him. But I, for some reason... Wait a second. Wait a goddamn sec... Um, what the... What the hell? How do you... Okay. 
He was listed in a a um a one of the Disney live action remakes when I had no idea they were doing. Lady and the Tramp is getting a live action remake. What the hell? Uh, it's being directed by Charlie Bean, who is who worked in the art department for a lot of Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network shows. Um, apparently, he directed the Lego Ninjago movie, and then he also did uh, episodes of Tron Uprising. So this will be his second feature length film. And then the the writer is Andrew Bujalski. Uh, who is best known for computer chess, funny haha, mutual appreciation, stuff I've never heard of. Never heard of these movies. Uh, and then Tessa Thompson and Justin Theroux are apparently either playing, uh, I don't know if they're going to be playing um, late, the actual late, okay, yeah, they're doing the voices of Lady and the Tramps, uh, respectively. And then we've got. Um, Kiersey Clemens as as Darling, Thomas Mann as Jim Deere, Yvette Nicole Yvette Nicole Brown is Aunt Sarah. That'll be interesting. Benedict Wong, uh, Ashley Jensen, Matt Mercurio, Michael Turek is going to be uh, minor work. Uh, it'll be a uh, sort of uh, extra, essentially. Uh, but okay, okay. Um, I mean Tessa Thompson, so. Great choice there, but we'll see how it turns out. Uh, so yeah, at any rate, um, any at any rate, Hellfest looks like a, a great horror movie. If it if it turns out really bad, eh, eh, we'll see. But for the for what it, for what it looks like for what the trailer's telling me, it could be a fun, you know, slasher horror movie. So we'll see how it turns out in the end. And uh, that about does it for this week, which means it is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you are most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And, as you, and if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes, be sure to go favorite that page, white, uh, whitelist us on your ad blocker, and you can follow new episodes as they get released. And you can also check out all of our other fine programming, Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, uh, the other Snarkcast uh, productions like... Um, the family business and what's more worth feeling and uh you know just all, and of course we've got um my you know my other project uh living in the stacks which will be uh releasing a new episode next week and then uh we I am talking with Mike we are hoping to get Maji Day restarted pretty soon so keep your uh, we'll announce that when it gets um up and running again, and I do want to get uh, new episodes of uh, Tragic Missile up and running. I've got a backlog. I just need to sit down and edit them, so I'm hoping to get those back up and running again. Uh, but yeah, and if you are a producer yourself and you want to and want your uh, podcast featured on our network, let us know. Send all inquiries to Gumbicat Networks at gmail.com, and we'll get back to you. But if you're not listening to us through there, you're most likely you can you're probably listening to us through your our various podcast providers, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, Stitcher. So if you're listening to us through to us through whatever service, be sure to leave a five-star rating interview and let people know that you like the show. And if you want to share us on your social media, our social media home is Facebook.com slash popcorn junkie, uh, Twitter at corn junkie pod, Instagram at popcorn junkie podcast. Um, Stardust at Popcorn Junkie. Uh, I've been holding off of Mondo for a while. Uh, uh, Mastodon, not Mondo. Uh, Mastodon for a while. I may try it again uh, this week, but 
I, I've just been sticking with Twitter for right now just because Mastodon didn't seem to be providing what I needed as a, as a reprieve from Twitter, sadly. Um, but yeah, those are us on social media. Be sure to share us um, and let people know that you like the shelf. And uh, if there's anything else, any kind of feedback you want to share, any kind of corrections you want me to make, any kind of uh, suggestions... Uh, give your thoughts. What did you think of the movies I reviewed? Do you disagree? Do you agree? What are some of your favorite documentaries that you would like me to check out? Um, send all of that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. And, I, and of course, the Patreon is on hold right now. It's still active. If you wish to support this podcast on Patreon, you will get access to 10 episodes each of Make a Better Movie and um, much along. I shared the, uh, the first episodes on the, fe- on the main feed, so you can check those out there. And if you want more of those, and I promise they do get better as they go along, send, you, can, you can have access to them through our Patreon. Donate as little as $1 a month, and you get access to all of the reward tiers and all of the content. And you'll get access to all future content as well. Early access to all future content as well. So if you want to do, support the show on Patreon, do so at patreon.com slash popcornjunkie. That about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and I've actually got a lot of work to do. I've got to catch up on stuff for A Star is Born. So if, I'm not, if, if I don't mention it on the show, pretty soon I'm going to be binging through the A, Star, the a Star is Born series by watching each remake of that. So this will be fun. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantarts.com for more of his artwork. While E.I. Roth is seeing some minor success experiment playing with uh, kids' movies, he... Uh, <laughs> this, this, yeah, cut all this out, damn it.